Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Passages of Summer edition of the 7 a.m. Novelist. I'm Michelle Hoover, your host. Now, we all know that the early pages of a novel are really hard to get right. So this summer, we're discussing the choices that went into a range of authors' first pages in terms of scene, structure, language, etc., and how these choices might help you with your own first pages. Today, we are very lucky to hear from Rachel Kadish, who is going to share the first pages of her latest novel, The Weight of Ink. Good morning, Rachel. Hey, good morning. Thank you so much for waking up early and being on the show. Rachel Kadish is the award-winning author of the novels The Weight of Ink, and The Weight of Ink won the National Jewish Book Award. She also is the author of the novels From a Sealed Room and Tolstoy Lied, A Love Story, as well as the novella I Was Here. Her work has appeared in NPR and the New York Times, Slate, Salon, Plowshares, Paris Review, and Tin House, and she lives outside Boston. Okay, Rachel, um, can you give us kind of an overview of the book so that when we are listening to the first pages, we have a little bit of a context? Sure thing. Absolutely. And and thanks so much for having me. Um, so I set out to write this book um, with a quote ringing in my head. Uh, it's uh, Virginia Woolf from A Room of One's Own. And she is discussing this question of uh, what if William Shakespeare had had an equally talented sister? What would have been her fate? And Woolf says quite succinctly and depressingly, she died young, alas, she never wrote a word. That that's what would have happened to a woman of that time period with that kind of talent. And I couldn't help shadow boxing with that. I kept thinking, you know, what, you know, yes, we, everything we know about the, the lives of women of that era um, makes it very unlikely that anyone would be able to really express whatever talent they have, whether it's playwriting or mathematics or any of it. But still, what would it take? What would it take for a woman of that era not to die without writing a word or painting a painting? Um, and uh, and I thought I wanted to try to tell the story, a story to look at this question of what does it take for a woman not to be defeated when everything around her is telling her to sit down and mind her manners. So I set out to write about women characters who don't mind their manners, which is fun for me. Um, and I fell in love with uh, 17th century history, and I can say more about that later. But basically, the book is one of these braided, braided narratives that goes back and forth between the contemporary storyline and the past. And the catalyst for it is uh, in 2000, there is a, a couple that has a 17th century home that's been in the family. They renovate it to turn into an art gallery. They bring in an electrician. He goes to put wiring in through an old uh, staircase. And as he opens up the staircase, under the staircase, he finds shelves crammed with these 17th century papers. They are signed with the name of a rabbi and so the the husband reaches out to his a, a former professor so enter helen watt who's one of the main characters of the novel um who is a uh non-jewish british professor who specializes in jewish history for very personal reasons having to do with a very personal part of her past that she has kind of sealed off but this is her area of history her specialization and she's brought in to look at these 17th century papers and very quickly realizes that they upend everything she thought she knew about this period of jewish history in london uh, and and somewhat upending what she thought she knew about her own life she is working in tandem with Aaron Levy, who is a very arrogant American graduate student, and I had so much fun just watching them sort of productively hate each other on the page. That was a lot of fun to write. And then the other piece is um, 
who wrote these papers? And so the, the narrative keeps alternating back to the 17th century, to the story of Esther Velasquez, who is a, a part of this uh, community of uh, Portuguese Jewish refugees during the Inquisition who end up in Amsterdam, and then some of them end up in, in London. And of course, she is my character. I was thinking of, you know, how do you not die without writing a word? She's an orphan. She's living in the, the household of a blind rabbi and she ends up scribing for him so she is sitting in a room with access to books and papers that women would not otherwise have access to and the person in the room with her cannot see what she's actually reading and what she's actually writing and she becomes fascinated by these questions that are really forbidden to ask this is a time in Europe when people were literally ripped limb from limb for asking certain questions about God or the world or uh, men and women um, and um, she uh, you know she she comes up with a scheme to, to live a life of the mind. And so it's that back and forth between Helen and Esther and Aaron that fascinated me. Mm-hmm. And one thing that I love that I'm hearing is that with the contemporary characters story, the stakes are both wider and societal. Like What she discovers changes Jewish history, I think is how you said it, but also personal. Um, and I think you need both of them uh for the book to work and i think sometimes authors go to one or the other but they forget that that combination of both um is is really pivotal to make the story work i'm I'm really fascinated by that question of you know we can we can study history and we can uh we can sort of you know pick up a piece of history and look at it but when you pick up a piece of history to look at it it's in your hands right it's in your hands what are you going to do with it and are you going to let it change you also or are we just going to keep this sort of academic and I think if we study history right it changes us it changes how we live right right okay let's hear these pages okay um so I'm going the the book starts out with a a very brief uh prologue June 8th 1691 11th Sivan of the Hebrew year 5451 Richmond Surrey let me begin afresh, perhaps this time to tell the truth. For in the biting hush of ink on paper, where truth ought raise its head and speak without fear, I have long lied. I have not to defend my actions, yet though my heart feels no remorse, my deeds would confess themselves to paper now as the least of tributes to him whom I once betrayed. In this silenced house, quill and ink do not resist the press of my hand, and paper does not flinch. Let these pages compass at last the truth, though none read them. And then we go to part one, chapter one. And uh, okay, Um, November 2nd, 2000, London. She sat at her desk. It was a fine afternoon, but the cold sunshine beyond her office window oppressed her. In younger days, she might have ventured out, hoping against reason for warmth. Hope against reason, an opiate she'd long abandoned. Slowly, she sifted the, sifted the volumes on her desk. A dusty bilingual edition of Usque's Consolação lay open. She ran the pad of one finger down a page before carefully shutting the book. Half past one, and the American hadn't so much as telephoned, a lack of professionalism incompatible with a finding of this magnitude. Yet Darcy had said the American his most talented postgraduate, and Darcy, perhaps alone among her colleagues, was to be trusted documents darcy had said over the phone glad to lend him to you for a bit he's amusingly ambitious in the american sort of way thinks history can change the world but even you should be able to tolerate it for three days recalling helen almost chuckled even you good for darcy he evidently still thought helen someone worth standing up to 
three days, of course, was nowhere near the time required to make a true assessment, but it was something, far more time, in fact, than Helen had any right to. Only the Easton's ignorance of the usual protocols had prevented them from laughing her out of their house when she'd announced that she required further access to the documents. She dared ask no more, sitting there at the dark wooden table opposite Ian and Bridget Easton, the sun from the windows lying heavily aslant the couple's manicured hands, the towered, towering mullioned windows casting bars of shadow and diamonds of light, and Helen's own thoughts tumbling from what she'd just glimpsed. Consultations like yesterday's weren't unheard of, naturally. People sometimes turned up old papers in their attics or at the bottom of handed-down trunks, and if they didn't think to call an antiquities council, they contacted the university and asked for the history faculty. Yesterday's caller, though, had asked specifically for Helen Watt. Ian Easton. The name had meant nothing to Helen, though he'd said he'd been her student once, years ago. I'm actually going to skip forward because the, the next part says what I just summarized about how the electrician uncovers the papers. Um, and this is just, I'm going to read one more page. It's page 10 for anyone who's following along. Um, and this is when Helen has arrived at the house and uh, despite her skepticism realized that this is actually a 17th century home and uh, she first encounters the papers. There on a small card table beside the window was a single cracked leather bound volume. Beside it lay the two pages Ian had told her about over the phone, the first items his electrician had removed from under the staircase upon discovering the documents. For an instant she'd allowed herself to stare at the pages, taking in the thick textured paper she dared not touch. Then at the counterpoint of two alphabets on the page, the Portuguese lettering that led from left to right, interrupted by scattered Hebrew phrases that ran in the reverse direction. Slowly she read and reread. Ian's voice coming from just behind her, over there, he said, and pointed. She lifted her eyes. There, in a dim corner at the base of the staircase, untouched by the blinding light of the landing's windows, was a small panel that had been forced open. Ignoring Ian's tentative offer of help, Helen approached the opening. Lowering herself slowly to the floor, her cane trembling heavily under her weight, she knelt before it like a penitent. She stayed that way for a long time, her hands pressed to the cool floor, and a great heaviness nearly overcame her, as though all her years had suddenly taken on physical weight. For a long while she simply stared at the crammed shelves, breathing very quietly. Then finally, knowing she should not, she lifted a quaking hand to remove a single page. A moment only. The page, astonishingly, rested unharmed on her two outspread palms, like a bird that had agreed for just this moment to alight there. Beautiful, beautiful, absolutely beautiful. Thank it's you. interesting, the part that you left out, I, I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is basically a flash, flashback scene that tells us how she got there. Mm -hmm. Is that correct? Yes. Um, but you included it in the book, but you didn't want to include it in the reading. So can you talk about why you felt it was important in the book? Um, well, I think to, to sort of establish, you know, what why she's there, what the 17th century, what the origin of the 17th century papers are. And actually, I shouldn't have skipped all of that. I just realized as I was reading to you, because in the section I read, you have no way to know. Helen has a significant hand tremor, and that's why she's not supposed to be handling these papers. Um, so um, I'm, I'm fond of that moment where Helen encounters the papers. So I usually try to uh, include that. And just for the purposes of today, I thought, well, I, I already told you about how the papers are found so you know why why repeat it but um but there's so much you know even in just the telling of that information in the papers i skipped um 
there's a lot in there about Helen's physical frailty, um, about her her sense of dullness in her current work. She's she's sort of missing the spark she used to have. There are things going on with her health, but also she's feeling very far away from what made her first fall in love with history. And it's this moment of getting seeing the papers that's going to reconnect her to that. Oh, wonderful! And that's. You know, that kind of um, vulnerability and uh, brokenness in the character really invites us in um, and makes us makes us interested and makes us want to watch um, because we we have a sense that this is going to be important. You even in the, you have an early line that says hope against reason and opiate she'd long abandoned, which makes us feel like something has happened to this woman. Yeah. Um, she she's she's in a place um, again of brokenness. And then hopefully we'll probably find out how she got there so we'll, we'll eventually get the story as the um novel continues so oh go ahead oh i was just gonna say i tend to fall in love with characters who are a little thorny and difficult on the outside because it's so you know it's so worth the patience at time and time it takes to understand them when they sort of crack open from the beginning i I love this character. I know that Helen is a character who can, he's, she's forbidding on the outside. Um, and I think that's, you know, what she's sort of referring to where she, she appreciates, she, she doesn't mind conflict. She appreciates that Darcy still thinks she's worth standing up to. Um, a lot of people find her very off-putting. Um, but what I admire about this character from the get-go is she is top to bottom honest. And that means, and, and, and unflinching and unsparing, which means she's hard on other people, but she's also willing to be just as hard on herself. So she's not a hypocrite. And right. that means that when she starts realizing that some of the walls she's put up and some of the shortcuts she's taken in her own mind and heart, she is unsparing on herself. And I just respect her from the from the start. And I like that you talk about cracking the character open, because I think that's really, really important. Um, to be able to go there with the character, it's it's the cracking the character open, taking down all of their pretenses, um, all of the societal etiquette rules that they cloak themselves with to really get to who they are in, in a very human way. Um, Flannery O'Connor talks about, um, she thinks a, a story is finished when the when the mystery of the character has been told. And I always say you need that cracking open for the mystery of the character to get across from us. Otherwise, otherwise right. we don't we don't have that that character. Also, she's a bit of a rebel, which I like. Um, I mean, if we're talking about women, you know, needing to grab hold of, you know, she is the Eastons are ignorant of the usual protocols. So even though she doesn't dare to ask for more, she's already pushed a little bit. Mm -hmm. And then we get the comment from. Darcy, who seems to admire her in a way, um, you know, even you should be able to tolerate or at least knows her strength. <laughs> um, and I and I love seeing that. So we're getting her character from many different angles. I think it works really well now. But you start with this prologue, um, though you don't name in a prologue, which is what I always advise people to do to just include prologues, but not name them prologues. Um, <laughs> because I personally love prologues. So did you always start here with the novel? Uh, yes, which is sort of astonishing because I assume, I was assume that the first, you know, 10, 20 things I write are, are, I'm going to end up throwing out. So I never expected this to stay, but I, I was very early on, I just started in with this voice, really having no idea what, even what the character's name was, you know, this is Esther, but I didn't even know that then. And, and what, what did she have to say? I just felt like 
there was a character and she had something to confess and it was something like you know she she knew she'd done wrong and she would do it all over again and she wanted just at the very least, even if no one ever read these pages to explain herself on paper. So first of all, I think, you know, as as, as writers, I guess we are wired toward, um, you know, understanding the value of just putting something on paper to, to see the words, to see it exist. And so I'm imagining this woman who cannot confess to anyone what she's done, trying to put it on paper and then of course that uh that line you know it's a, I mean I, I improvise I don't plan in advance I, I've often wished I were a writer who plans in advance because I feel like my life would just be so much more orderly and you know I'd be able to predict when I finish things and I, do, does any writer actually work that way I don't I, I can't but I'm I'm maybe particularly chaotic I, everything is improvised there's no outline um I, you know I'm going back and forth between contemporary and 17th century storylines every time Helen and Aaron say who could have written this? I'm thinking, yeah, who could have written that? Let's go to the 17th century and see. So it's it's all it's all very improvised. And I was improvising this, and and I um, uh, had that line, um, uh, the least of tributes to him whom I once betrayed, and I thought, oh, she's betrayed somebody, um, and she felt she had to. But um, what's that about? So to me, this was sort of a a passage um, that that led me it sort of opened all these doors for me and I didn't know if I was going to keep the passage but then it ended up um it ended up just feeling right a chance to give a sample of of the voice to just let us feel enough of the the weight of that 17th century language without fully immersing in it but um you know I I ended up thinking a lot about how to bring the reader into the 17th century language because it's daunting and the 17th century world and you don't know the history and the history is complicated and these are refugees and where are they refugees from and they're in England but they're Portuguese but they were in Amsterdam how does this make it like it was there was so much that I ended up as I wrote and moved forward into the narrative realized that um I didn't want to throw the reader into a 17th century chapter full-on 20 pages of 17th century at the start I thought the reader might it, it just might be too much I thought it might be too much for me as if I were the reader trying to get used to this 17th century vocabulary and not knowing what the history was and all of that. So if you actually look at the way the book is structured, and I, I stumbled into this, it's going to sound like I planned it, but I didn't, I stumbled into it. Um, but it begins um, with this very short prologue. And then the chapters alternate. Odd number chapters are all contemporary. Even numbers are all 17th century. Well, the, the chapters two, four, and six, they're all one or two pages long. It's a letter. It's a scene of them crossing the English Channel. It's another letter. I did not go beyond two pages on 17th century material until chapter eight. Hmm. So you keep sort of dipping a toe into the 17th century, getting a taste of the language. And then next you hear the rabbi's voice. And then next, you know, you see Esther on the boat uh, going to London. And so you you have a chance to sort of get pulled in a little bit by the story, but without being overwhelmed. And in the meanwhile, in chapters one, three, five, and seven, we're meeting Helen and Aaron. What are these papers? What are these about? What what was going on in the 17th century? Um, hopefully, you know, bit by bit, getting comfortable with that world and that language. I did at one point have to do one little information dump in the form of an email, which I, I just had to, you know, <laughs> where Aaron says to his sort of girlfriend, you know, let me tell you why these papers are so interesting. Are you sitting down? Sit down. I'm going to be pompous for a minute and tell you the history. And you just have to learn the history, right? Um, but then finally, we get to chapter eight, and I was really 
nervous when I wrote chapter eight, because that's the first, you know, jump in with both feet is a full length 17th century chapter in that language, in that world with its details. And I just had to hope that by that point, the reader was oriented enough that it just felt natural and would make yeah. sense. And you could jump into the 17th century and feel comfortable there. Yeah, I think, I mean, that's wonderful. That's a, that's a wonderful way to structure it. And then just, again, as you talked about it, just allowing us to put a toe in and then we just, you know, go deeper and deeper and then we're enmeshed and then we're interested. I think that voice is absolutely stunning. Um, it doesn't push me off yeah. at all. Um, there's, there's just, um, there's a lot of um, pathos to it that I think is really interesting. And I also love you know, so I just interviewed Allegra Goodman and about her book, Sam, and she had a similar experience that she she had she discovered this voice of a young child that was kind of of a seven year old girl that was just talking to her. And she just followed that voice into the book. And she had that the first lines from the get go from her very earliest writing. And then she just followed the voice and she didn't know where it was going to take her, but she had the voice and she had that persona. And that's what it sounds like you did, too, at least at the beginning that you just this voice was speaking to you and you just followed it. Yeah, very to, much. To the point that you're like, oh, she betrayed somebody. <laughs> I think, and I think that's really significant. A lot of writers think that they need to pre-plan that, but your subconscious is oftentimes giving you material mm -hmm. um, if you're paying attention. So as you write, look back at what you've already done, and then you can just follow that and expand on that and deepen that. And it seems like that was your experience here. Yeah. And I think that's a lot to do with why, I mean, I, I say, um, well, I mean, I just, I can't outline, I don't, I don't want to outline because I feel, I'm sure that other people can do it in a way that's, that's better. But for me, I think if I were to outline, I would start shutting doors. I would, mm -hmm. if I hadn't, thought in advance about the fact that she'd betrayed someone, maybe it wouldn't occur to me to write that line. Or if it occurred to me, I would say, oh, no, that's a tangent. I can't follow that. And so even though, you know, my writing process does feel, does feel a little chaotic, I don't mind that. I, I, I'm so curious about the characters. And I really feel like um, plot to me comes later. It's, um, and I mean, don't get me wrong, plot is hugely important, especially with a book this long. Mm -hmm. um, I actually think that I um, sort of a, a tangent on my tangent, right? But um, I think that I learned to write plot from um, uh, having kids, from mm. reading all these books to them over the years. And you cannot have a boring book for a little kid. They're just not going to sit for it, right? And it just reminded me of what we sometimes forget in graduate school and sort of high-level workshops that, oh, you know, story should be a really good story it should be interesting you know it's that that cadence that and then and then and then so you know that's that's really important to me but having said that I find the plot on the other side of uh, you know first I'm looking at who are these characters and what pressures are they under and you take you know who's Helen what pressure is she under she's got a chairman she hates she's near mandatory retirement she has a severe hand tremor which is indicative of some other health issues and the one thing she wants to touch more than anything else, the history, the papers, she is literally barred from touching the papers because her hand tremor will destroy these fragile papers. Mm -hmm. Those are pressures. So what's she going to do? And it yeah. forces her into dependence on Aaron and she can't stand that. And, you know, and, and you know, that and then the plot sort of comes out of, of that. Great. Um, I was going to say something else, but one thing that I also really like about then the Helen character is that she, again, is is 
she's crossing a threshold and, and, and she, she, it seems like she's not quite supposed to be there or there, there's some dangers of her being there. And our best stories do start, you know, if you look at fairy tales, there's always a crossing of the threshold. Mm -hmm. There's always a breaking of a rule, however loud or, or quiet it is. That's how so many stories uh, begin. And so it's an excellent choice. And I tell you, I do think now that I think back, I think mothers and are some of our best writers these days. And it's probably <laughs> just what you said that they're reading books to their kids and they know <laughs> they need to keep their attention. Um, how, how quickly then did you discover Helen? Um, Helen, uh, you know, she was kind of, kind of presented herself whole to me. Uh, also, Aaron took me a little longer, but, but Helen, because I think I grew up, I grew up, um, so my mom, uh, was, uh, one of the, uh, sort of an early, um, well, she was one of the pioneers. She's one of the people who did the lab work uh, and the biology work that uh, resulted in part in the fact that we have the um, Gardasil vaccine, the HPV vaccine, all that. My mom went to med medical school at a time when that was not a thing many women did. And she really had to, you know, stand up for herself and and kind of do battle for her space and all of this at a time where they, they didn't have words for, you know, they didn't call it sexual harassment that, you know, and um I grew up watching her and that generation of women to whom I think we owe an enormous debt really break barriers and mm -hmm. see and seeing how tough you had to be and seeing how people on the outside who didn't necessarily know uh, that that toughness was required or where it came from might not get it in the beginning. So from the start, I just thought, you know, I can imagine some of what Helen had to do as a, a woman of a certain age in academia. Um, but she, that, that, um, that, you know, I mean, one of the first lines I wrote was um, that line about, you know, an opiate she'd long, long abandoned, yeah. a hope against reason. And, and that got me curious about, again, it was an improvised line, but it got me curious what kind of disappointments has she had in her life, but also the big mistakes she's made, which is sealing herself off against further disappointments, sealing herself off against life in a lot of ways. Yeah, you know, a lot of those, a lot of those lines that come out of us and you're like, oh, wait a minute, something's happened to her that I can continue to explore yeah. and dive into to understand her character yeah, more. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Aaron was a little, uh, he comes in, I didn't read any of his material yet, but he's, I mean, I have so much fun with him, but he's kind of arrogant. A lot of things have come easy to him. And for a while I had trouble um, mm. looking for a way to like him um, because usually what I find is that, I mean, I don't, I don't have to looking for a way I don't have to like everything about my characters I don't have to like most things but there has to be something I can love and usually this isn't you know hard and fast rule but often I find that what makes me fall in love with a character is the moment where I can see that they love something outside of themselves mm -hmm. um, it can be something tiny it can be something maybe I don't even agree with but it's something they would do anything to protect that one thing or that one person and that's usually my end then then I can then I can work with them from there and uh, with Aaron, I was struggling with that until um, there was a, a passage, I, you know, I have to go find it, but it's, it's about how, you know, he sort of, um, yeah, it's all these ex-girlfriends and he, he just, he's this very kind of smooth guy, sort of aced everything he ever did. Um, but when he talked about history, his voice cracked. Like there was that one thing that would really get him that he was willing to sort of be enthralled to. Mm -hmm. um, and I thought, you know, I got to that line. I thought, okay, you know, there'll be something here I can work with. with, with this right. Guy. 
Because I think a lot of writers worry about, you know, there's this this whole debate about likable characters and likability. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think what people reflect back on is, does the writer like their own character? Yeah. <laughs> and then how just how to discover that connection themselves, whether or not the reader is going to go for it or not. You can't always control that. Um, but if you're interested or if you feel yourself finding, again, that kind of crack in the character that lets us in. And so it sounds like it's his interest or love in history that cracks his own voice when he speaks of it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, And I I think also that's one of the things that I love about writing is that it lets me love characters that I would have to keep at arm's length in real life because, you know, these are some of them are very difficult people, um, but on the page, I can love them and walk all around them and see them from different angles. You know, in real life, I might be more defended. Hopefully there's some crossover so that, you know, I can be a more generous, you know, capacious person on the page. And then I can encounter someone difficult in real life and think, oh, maybe this person's like Helen. And, you know, <laughs> um, yes. but uh, but that's one of the the gifts, I think. Yes. Writing makes you a better person. OK, let's end with that. <laughs> Because I think that's writing just makes you a better person. So everyone should should be doing that. Okay, everyone, <laughs> I need to get you back to your own writing desk so that you can become a better person. Uh, you can find our full schedule on our Substack page at 7amnovelist.substack.com. Subscribe there for updates. You can also find our full range of podcast episodes on that page, including episodes from our past two writing challenges. We did two enormously tiring and wonderful writing challenges with a lot of writers and a lot of um, ideas and things to learn from. So I do recommend looking back at um, previous episodes. I think it'd be very helpful for you. You can also find all of those episodes on any of your favorite podcast platforms. And if you like what we're doing, please follow, rate, and review our podcast because that makes us look really cool. And then other people will want to listen. And that also helps our authors, which hopefully also helps you. Okay. One last question, Rachel. What advice would you give to authors about their own first pages? Um, so there's something really wonderful that uh, Joyce Carol Oates said in a class I, I had the good luck to take with her many years ago, and it has really helped me. Um, she was talking to, it was a workshop, and she was talking to one of uh, the other students in the group and telling that writer that um, they really needed to cut their first couple of paragraphs that the story really started on, you know, what was maybe page two. But what she said was, um, think of those first paragraphs as scaffolding. You had, you're building a building. You had to put up the scaffolding to build the building. You had to write those paragraphs to figure out where you were going. But if you don't tear down the scaffolding when you're done with the building, you have an ugly building. So you have to be willing to take it down. And even though I know I just said that I kept my first paragraph, but when I wrote it, I assumed it was scaffolding. And every first paragraph I ever write, I assume is scaffolding. And so it takes all the pressure off. You just assume it's going to go away later, but but you, you write it so that you can move on and 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 don't overpressure it. Just write it and move on to other things. You'll figure it out later. Right. And that is true to other tangents that we take and the hundreds and hundreds of other pages that we write that never make it in the book, that that we need to write that material in order to get to the material that we have. But I think it's particularly significant for first pages. Um, wonderful. I think the right, our writers are definitely going to be able to use that. So thank you very much for spending your time. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Thank you. And Rachel, um, I know you're working on revisions for your most latest novel, so good luck with that. Thank you so much. And thanks for having me. This was really fun. 